Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would shine in us the light of your truth through the preaching of your holy word. Prepare our hearts now to receive this word with faith, to respond with obedience, to bear good fruit for your glory. For we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, page 984 in the Pew Bibles. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jonas is a gardener who is the most diligent at weeding that you can imagine. The moment a weed begins to sprout above the soil, he is on it. And he doesn't just pluck up just that which is above the the surface. He does things right. He digs down, he gets out the roots. But as you observe his garden, you notice something strange. Even though there are no weeds, there are never any weeds. Nothing else seems to grow either. Why? Because he hasn't planted any flowers or any vegetables. It's just bare ground. Weed-free bare ground. But bare ground nevertheless. Now, perhaps this sounds a bit absurd, but it illustrates what it would be like if you put into practice last week's passage without continuing on to our passage this morning. Last week, we saw the need to put sin to death, to take off the old man and his practices. In other words, to weed the sin out of the garden of your life. But if you stop there, you would be just like Jonas, left with bare soil. Of course, we also saw last time that you have not only taken off the old man with his practices, you have also put on the new man. And you are being renewed after the image of your creator. You are being made more like Jesus Christ. And so in our passage this morning, Paul continues to flesh out exactly what it looks like to put on Jesus Christ. And so just as last time we had two lists of five sins, 
One that needed to be put to death and the other that needed to be taken off like filthy clothes. So here Paul gives us a list of five, five virtues. And again, he uses the imagery of clothing, saying clothe yourselves with these, put them on. And also just as last time we saw how Jesus Christ binds us all together in a community that crosses all boundaries, all the boundaries that divide people in our world today, we see that as he works this new and transformed life in each one of his followers, it cultivates this rich community, which can flourish despite all our differences. So we'll look at our passage in two parts this morning. First, clothe yourselves with Christ's character. And secondly, gratefully let Christ rule in his body as he unites us together in himself. So, First, clothe yourselves with Christ's character. And we saw last time that a change in our character and behavior, it actually flows out of a change in our identity. Since you've trusted in Christ, you have been united in him. And that changes who you are. You have died with him to sin. You have been raised with him to new life. You have been seated with him in heavenly places. And the first implication of this that we looked at last time was that, therefore, you must put sin to death. And then in verse 12, before getting to the five virtues you must put on, there's a further reminder of this new identity, who you are in Christ. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, this is more about who you are, your new identity. You are not only in Christ, but you are chosen, holy, and beloved because this is who you are. That's why you must clothe yourself in the following way. So let's consider this rich description of your identity in Christ, chosen, holy, Loved by God. These are the very terms that God often used to describe his people, his Old Testament people, Israel. We see all three terms come together in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so in just those few verses you see the Lord speaking to his people Israel, saying, you are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. But now he's writing to the Colossians, and this is a predominantly Gentile church, and he's saying, you are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. Why is he saying this to these people? Well, they are his New Testament people, and as he's told them, the gospel now crosses all boundaries. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, for, all, for Christ is all and is in all. And so, of course, this description applied to the Colossians. It applies to you today as well. If you are trusting in Christ for salvation, 
That's because God has chosen you first. That's the only reason you chose him, because he chose you first and called him, called you to himself. And that means, therefore, he has set you apart from this world, set you apart for himself. That's what it means to be holy, set apart to God. This is what we call definitive holiness. And of course, this must be followed by a transformed life, a life of holiness. And that's what the rest of this passage is all about. But here it's simply saying, you are holy, that you are set apart for God. And then, of course, you are loved. God chose you because he loved you. Not because there's anything lovely in you to cause God to love you. He simply loved you because he loved you. He, in his good pleasure, out of pure grace, chose to set his affection upon you. Now it's in the wonderful security of who you are in Christ, in all that you have received in him, that Paul now writes, put on the character of Christ. You have already received all this. You have been clothed with Christ, what he said in verse 10. Now he says, put on the character of Christ. Become more and more like him in the way you live. Now the five virtues that he lists here are all virtues which shine through in Jesus' own life. First he says you are to put on compassionate hearts. Now this describes a heart that is easily moved with sympathy towards those who are hurting or distressed. It is to be tender-hearted, compassionate, merciful. You are to be concerned for physical distress, yes, but also and especially for spiritual need. You won't be surprised to hear that the Gospels often describe Jesus' heart of compassion for those around him. One time ministry had been so heavy that he was seeking to get away from the crowds, to have a time of rest alone with his disciples. They had been so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. And yet even as they had fled from the crowds, they get to a, a, a quiet, secluded place, and another crowd shows up and surrounds them. The scripture says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, Mark 6.34. And so the Lord went on and he taught them all day long and when it grew late and they were hungry, he fed them, all 5,000 of them. All this flowing out of the compassionate heart of our Savior. Although Jesus was longing for rest for himself when he saw this deep need, his compassionate heart compelled him to have mercy. In a similar way, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, yes, but especially to weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. So clothe yourself with a compassionate heart like Christ. Second, put on kindness. In the Bible, this term is often used to speak not only of generally doing good to others, of course, but especially showing kindness to those who do not return it. For example, Jesus teaches in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And so you're to show kindness to all, especially those who do not return it. Third, put on humility. This is, of course, one of the great Christian virtues. 
But in Paul's day, it was despised by the Greeks and the Romans. Humility was considered a mark of servility and cowardice. Pride was expected of those who had power and greatness. But then we turn and we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself so low so that he might save us. And you are called to that same humility. Clothe yourself with humility, the humility of Jesus Christ. Fourth, put on meekness, or as this Greek term is often translated, gentleness. Jesus famously describes himself in this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Meekness is often defined by preachers as strength under control, but I like its even fuller definition, strength and courage under control coupled with kindness. It also comes up in the context of correction in Galatians 6.1. Or Paul writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so one commentator writes, a gentle person is someone who is able to correct another's conduct in such a way that he experiences this as help and not condemnation. This is true gentleness. And isn't this what we so deeply need in a congregation which is made up of sinners, but sinners who want to grow and be sanctified? And where it's true, people will be going astray and we need to watch out for one another, to at times correct one another, but to do so with compassion, with kindness, with gentleness, so that it's not felt as condemnation, but true help to restore us and set us on the right way. So put on gentleness, the gentleness of Christ. And fifth, put on patience. Now here, patience is not describing the willingness to sit there and wait a long time, but the willingness to endure wrongs. Now most of the Bible verses that use this particular word describe the patience of God the Father, the patience of Him towards sinners. For example, Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Of course, God the Father is patient towards us. And though the term is not used, we see the patience of Jesus Christ in action as he goes to the cross, as he suffers the greatest mockery imaginable, and he patiently endures it. And then even more, he suffers the very wrath of God that you and I deserve. He suffers it in our place. 
And through it all, he patiently endures. And he does so out of love. I will never go through that, but what an example it is of the kind of patient endurance that you and I are to demonstrate when you are going through and suffering affliction, when you are suffering the wrongs of others in this life. Put on patience, the patience of Christ. And so Paul here, he lists five virtues, the virtues of Christ, like five items of clothing that you are to put on. But he doesn't stop here. Closely related to patience is what comes next in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And this verse is taking these attributes, especially the one about patience, and it applies it to the life of the body of Christ. It's made up of the body, it's made up of people from all walks of life, people who are very different from one another. And so there's certain, not only to be friction, but outright sin against one another. And so first Paul says, bear with one another. And that's the, that's the nice way of translating, translating this term. In other places, the same verb, it's translated, put up with one another. Because there are certain people in Christ's body that you wouldn't choose, people you don't easily get along with in the body of Christ. Now, just as in the early church, Christ brought together the Jews with the Gentiles that they had looked down upon for centuries. And he brought together the Gentiles with the Scythians that they considered the lowliest of all the barbarians. They despised them, and suddenly they were one people in Christ. Now, it's a beautiful thing. Now, we're in a culture that celebrates diversity, and it's a beautiful thing, truly, that Christ unites all these people. He brings them into one church, one body. That does not mean that it's always and immediately easy. It will require us to bear with one another. And then secondly, he says here, you're going to need to forgive one another. When someone sins against you, because we will sin against one another. You will need to forgive in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. And how has Christ forgiven you? You know the gospel. When you trust in Christ, he forgives you freely and completely. It is all of grace. And as was demonstrated in the parable of Matthew 18, which we read earlier, Christ forgives your sins against God. And those are great sins which deserve God's eternal wrath. That is the debt of, of, which is an eternal debt, a debt you could never repay. And so compared to this, the wrongs done to us by others, they are comparably small. Now when you compare that eternal debt with the small debt, it doesn't make forgiveness easy, but if you would soften your heart to forgive a person who, yes, has truly hurt you, the way to do so is to meditate on how Christ has forgiven you exceedingly more. And meditating on his grace, you will be strengthened to forgive others. That brings us to verse 14. And above all these, or I think better, over all these, 
Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now here Paul is completing the clothing metaphor with one crowning virtue, which completes the set. (coughs) So here love is pictured as an outer garment. Perhaps it's to be like an overcoat, which you put on last, which you put on on top of all the others. And it completes your outfit. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so Douglas Moo writes, Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience attain their full power only when they are unified by and empowered by love. Now love is absolutely central to Christ's character and therefore must be absolutely central to the character of the follower of Christ. And Jesus, he summarized the law as love for God and love for neighbor. He also issued his new command, he said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. This is my example that you are to follow. And this is so important because love needs to be defined by Christ and by his word. And it's not just some fuzzy idea as defined by emotion or by our culture today. We need to love in the same way that Christ loved, as he humbled himself, as he gave himself to others for their good to meet real physical and especially spiritual needs. And not only does this love bind together all the other virtues, but love creates deep bonds between people in Christ's church. It is the glue that binds us all together, bringing us into a greater unity. And so we see here, That because you have trusted in Christ, because you have put on the new man, you must also clothe yourselves with Christ's character. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and over all these things, put on love. Now, as we come to the second part of the passage, Paul moves away from this clothing metaphor, and he urges us to gratefully let Christ rule over his body. Now, all these virtues that we've been considering in verses 12 to 14, they have a communal concern. None of these things are individualistic. You can't just do these things. Or, Well, these are things that are a practice in relationship with others. But now the, the relational focus, it's, it's even further intensified in verses 15 through 17. Paul focuses directly on what we do together and how we treat one another. So let's read verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be, and be thankful. Now here Paul does begin with the heart of the individual, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, but the reason for this is because you have been called to peace in the one body of Christ. And there can be only one body, only if there's peace among all the members Otherwise, we'll be divided up into a bunch of different bodies which are warring against each other. Now, this peace of Christ is powerful because remember that Christ is the long-awaited, the prophesied prince of peace. He is the one who came to establish peace. He established peace between you and God by satisfying God's wrath on the cross. He established peace between Jew and Gentile by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2.14. And so Christ not only calls us to peace, he grants us peace. He is our peace. 
And the way to see this, the way to understand exactly how this works is that it actually flows out of verse 13. For if you are bearing with others, if you are forgiving any grievances within the body of Christ, then there will be no reason for hostility. There will be no division. Even to give an extreme example, I recently heard a podcast about Albanian blood feuds where families can go back and forth One family will murder a family member from the other family, and then it will go back and forth. One family member murdering another family back and forth, back and forth. And this can carry on for generation after generation. And yet all it takes is for one generation to decide to take the path of forgiveness. And the cycle is ended. Peace can be restored. And This is exactly what Christ does to bring peace to his body by first forgiving us and then calling all of us to forgive one another. And so there doesn't need to be cycles of sin responding to sin and vengeance because he rules over us as the prince of peace and he calls us to peace with one another. And so... There is always to be peace within the body, which is one body united in Christ. Paul then adds to the end of verse 15, what seems to be perhaps almost an afterthought. He says, and be thankful. But we see that this is a pattern. Thanksgiving is mentioned at the end of every verse 15, 16, and 17. Also, a heart full of gratitude toward God will make it far easier to be gracious towards others within the body of Christ. Restoring peace whenever there is conflict. If you are full of thanksgiving to God, how much easier it is to be gracious to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now from the peace of Christ, we move on to the word of Christ in verse 16. And Paul says, you are to let this dwell in you. Uh, it, It should be among you richly. Here the word of Christ is referring to the message of Christ, which is, the very heart of all scripture, old and new. It is all about Christ. Now this gospel message must be at the center of our worship. It should be at the center of our community. It should be in our mouths and in our conversations. We should be all about the message of Christ. The word of Christ is not just something that we have a passing familiarity with, but something that takes up permanent residence At the very center of who we are as a community is the very defining center of who we are. We see here that as the word of Christ dwells richly within his people, this leads to three things. First, it leads to all of God's people teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Of course, you may think of teaching and preaching the word of God as the exclusive responsibility of the minister. And certainly the minister must do that work. We must preach and teach. And in fact, this exact same pair of words, uh, we've seen it before in chapter 1, verse 28, as Paul describes his own ministry. He says, him we proclaim. Warning, it's actually the same verb, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. But here we see... Paul is encouraging all the people to be applying the word to one another. Everyone should also be teaching and admonishing one another. 
So always, this must be done with all wisdom, skillfully applying God's word to the particularities of each person and situation in this world. And only teach others as God gives you the wisdom to do so. But each member of the body is to speak and apply Christ's word to others as you are able. Now, even if this is something as simple as uh, discussing the sermon after the service, that's a way that you can be practicing this, speaking to others, discussing, this is what I learned from the sermon. Did you understand that? How did you learn? What are you learning from God's word today? The second result of the word of Christ dwelling richly among us is singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. For when you hear the good news of Christ and what he has done, you are moved to sing his praise. This singing will include the psalms of the Old Testament, which point forward to the coming of the Messiah, but also hymns and songs based on his word in other parts of scripture as well. Maurice Jones notes that every great spiritual revival in the Christian church has been accompanied by a corresponding outbreak and development of Christian hymnody. In other words, as God's word is going forth with the power of his spirit, it works to inspire God's people to sing and to write and to sing new songs of praise to his glory. Also, this singing may in fact be one of the primary ways that we do the first result teach and admonish one another. For as we sing as a congregation, we are not only singing to the Lord, but we're also singing to one another. We are, in fact, instructing one another in the truth. And the third result is that you are to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So again, we see that this is leading. The conclusion of this verse is thanksgiving. The picture we get here is of God's people with the word of Christ at our very center, leading to this mutual upbuilding as we exhort one another and singing to the Lord with hearts full of gratitude. Paul then finishes our passage with a summary commandment in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In a way, this is a restatement of The way Paul opened this section, if you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, let the Lord Jesus Christ be Lord of your life. And now he's simply saying that again in a different way. Whatever you do, word or deed, everything, he's not leaving anything out. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, to do something In Jesus' name doesn't mean you simply need to say his name every once in a while while you're going about living your life. It doesn't mean you just verbally dedicate your actions to him, whatever they happen to be. You can't do whatever you wish, sinful though it be, and say, this is for Jesus. I'm doing it for him. I dedicate this bank robbery to Jesus. The next time I hit my little brother... I'm doing it in Jesus' name. Now, to act in his name, your words and your deeds must be in accordance with the nature and the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this actually flows out of everything we've, everything we've seen in this passage and 
the one before. In order to truly keep this command, you must first be killing sin, taking off the filthy rags of the old way of life, and along with that being faithful and clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and his character and forgiving others, loving others, living in peace, letting his word dwell in you to instruct you in this way of life. And in this way, Christ will be working in you by his spirit and through his word to renew you in knowledge after his own image, conforming you to his likeness so that all your actions will more and more honor him and so that you act according to his character. And in this way, all that you do will be in his name. As you see, this verse closes with one final call to thanksgiving. This threefold call to give thanks in these three verses, it's a reminder that our obedience to Christ It's motivated not out of a desire to win his favor, not out of a desire to gain anything from God, but because we already rest securely in his love. We seek to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. We walk according to his character because we are so thankful for his amazing grace poured out upon us. And so just as the call to thanksgiving, it rings like a chorus Repeated here in this, these verses, so it should ring like a constant refrain from our lips. Let your mouth be constantly full of thanksgiving to the Lord who has forgiven your sins, who has given you new life, who is now making you more and more like himself. It is a grateful heart which will sustain you and even propel you to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. A lack of gratitude... It is a sign that perhaps you don't truly understand the gospel. Perhaps you haven't received his grace. For if you have, how can you not rejoice and give thanks? Now, at the same time, I do know that sometimes our eyes, our our hearts, we lose perspective. We're focused on the wrong things. And we need to be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. And we need to be intentional about remembering the good news. We need to cultivate that grateful heart in us and be reminded of his amazing grace. And so we've seen this morning this great need to continue the work of taking off and putting on what we began last week. Don't be like the foolish gardener Jonas who is dedicated to the killing of weeds but never actually cultivates any flowers in his garden. You must be both killing sin and cultivating the virtues of Christ. And we do this as we walk together as Christ's body. As we've seen today, these aren't virtues that you go into your closet and practice all by yourself. You need to be living the Christian life in the body of Christ with other people in order to practice love, forgiveness, peace, teaching one another, singing together with gratefulness in our hearts. And the beautiful thing is that all these things, they reinforce one another. For it's as we gather together as a body to worship Christ, to hear his word proclaimed, to sing to God, to hear others sing. As we pray to the Lord, the Lord uses all these things to be growing us to be more like him. For it's especially through our corporate worship that the Lord grows us in the knowledge of him. And as we saw last time in verse 10, it's as we are renewed in knowledge of the Lord that we are renewed in his image.
And so putting on the clothing of Christ's character, it comes not just from trying to will that there and work up in yourself more compassion and kindness and humility in your hearts, but it comes from growing to know Jesus more. And so the more that you know him, the more your heart will be like him. The more his character will overflow from your heart into your life. Now, yes, of course, there are moments when you will have to make that hard decision to choose that compassionate, loving action when you are tempted to selfishness. And that is part of spiritual warfare of putting sin to death. But the other side of this is the way the Spirit is working to transform your heart as you grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And so let us continue to worship our Savior, to give him the thanks and the glory for the grace he has shown us in his sacrifice in his sacrifice for us. And in so doing, we will grow in love for him. We will grow in knowledge of him and he will be growing us to be like him. And we'll continue doing this, especially as we give thanks as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So let's close now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, do give you thanks that you have called us to yourself, that you have chosen us, and you have set us apart from this world as holy to yourself because you have loved us, not because there's anything in us, but simply because you have loved us, that you have called us to be like your Son, Jesus Christ, and you are renewing us and making us like you. What a great privilege this is, but you uh, do so as you work in us by your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would be growing us in these graces, that you would be helping us to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, to be growing in love, to be like Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would be giving us opportunities to practice this as we are surrounded by our brothers and sisters and that you would be um, teaching us more and more. We pray, Father, that you would uh, be filling us with the word of Christ in all our thoughts and that you would be growing us in the wisdom that comes from meditating on the scriptures. And we pray even as we come to the table now that you would be growing us in your grace and growing us in faith so that we might be um, growing in obedience as well. For we know that all these things uh, come and um, are derived from the gospel of Jesus Christ, for our faith is in him, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.